We're in the midst of a series called The Ways of Jesus, and I thought we were taking last week when my wife spoke, but she really talked about probably one of the most important ways of the Jesus, one of the most important ways of Jesus, and that's the way of the cross, that the cross is the way of Jesus. He asks us to die to ourselves, to pick up our cross and follow him, follow in his footsteps, and uh, we've talked so far about uh, a few things. We've contrasted the ways of the world or the patterns of the world with the patterns of Jesus and to be transformed by the renewing of our minds according to Romans 12.2. We've talked about silence and solitude and how it's a way of Jesus that helps us to thrive in the chaos of society. We talked about fasting and how it brings our bodies under submission to our spirits and helps us develop some more self-control. And, and, and it, uh, it, it, it quiets our, our spirits and focuses us. We talked about prayer, how it's a practice of Jesus that can clear our minds from the world's distractions and keep us dependent upon God and, and keep us in intimacy with His presence. And today, we're going to talk about reading scripture, a very elemental uh, practice of something that we would, we know that we're supposed to do, right? We know that as followers of Jesus, we're supposed to cling to his word. We're supposed to be reading scripture. And today we're going to talk about uh, how Jesus used scripture and how he modeled it in his life, that he loved scripture. How many of you have uh, ever felt like you were reading scripture and it was written just for you? It was written for, how many of you know that the Bible uh, was not, it was written to an ancient people. It was not written to you, uh, but it was written for you. It was written to, to nourish you and to, and to feed your soul and to bring you into greater intimacy with God. And I remember being a young man and going to, going to youth group. And uh, it seemed like every conference or every camp I went to, there was always this guest speaker. And every guest speaker that came to camp or conference, he had, he had this radical testimony. It was always something like, yeah, I was on heroin or I, I was doing drugs for years and years and years. And I got radically saved, radically transformed. Or, yeah, I, got, I was in a gang and I got shot in the chest five times and the Lord saved my life. And here I am, a, a, a young man who grew up in the church thinking, I don't have a testimony like that. I wish I was on drugs. I, I wish I got shot in the chest five times so I'd have a cool story to tell at youth group. And you know, as young, as young people growing up in the church, we think this, that I don't have a story, that I need a, I need a testimony. You know, I need, a, I need a radical testimony. And the Lord brought me to the book of Samuel. And he began to show me how Samuel's mother dedicated him when he was a child and gave him to the church. And Samuel grew up in the church. And that story became my story. And I, I learned, you know what? This is a good thing. The Lord is, is, is raising me up with his people in his church. And I'm going, to embrace, I'm going to embrace the life of Samuel. I'm going to embrace someone who doesn't have a testimony that was on drugs or shot in the chest five times. And I began, it was the word of God that began to give me an identity. It was the word of God that began to just pour into my life a reality that I didn't have before. And then after that, I remember going to a ministry school in California, and uh, it, was a, it was a crazy time. I was this broke college student, had no money at all, and I'm trying to pay for tuition, trying to pay for, you know, to stay at this ministry school. And so I'm applying for all these jobs in the area, but nobody wants to hire me because of my hours, because the, the, the schedule of being a student at this school was, is in conflict with a lot what, what everybody kind of needed. And uh, so I wasn't getting hired anywhere, and I put in applications at Sears and Best Buy and and food places, and I was just trying to get a job, 
but my hours were limited. I was in ministry school. And uh, I just remember feeling anxious, like, God, I, I don't know how I'm going to stay here, and I don't know what I'm going to do. And one of the leaders of the church called me up on stage, and he said, I feel like God is speaking Psalm 23 over your life, that he wants to be your shepherd. He wants to provide for you. He wants to lead you beside quiet waters, and he wants to use this season to restore your soul. He wants you to rest in him, and he doesn't want you to have to work. And I was like, does he literally not want me to have to work? Because that would be great. I don't want to... But, but, but that was a season where the Lord began to use his word. He used scripture to nourish my soul. He began to speak life into me. And I began to realize that God does want to, he wants to be my shepherd. He wants to be my provider. And it was his word that drew me closer to him and led me into a reality of the kingdom that I didn't know before. God's word is powerful, church. It shapes our identities. It shapes who we are. It is the ultimate authority. But we live in a world of deception and confusion, don't we? And if you've kept a pulse on the state of the church in the last five years, you've probably heard the terms deconstruction, or maybe you've heard the terms progressive Christianity. And I have lots, lots of friends, many friends who declare on social media that they are deconstructing their faith and they're moving into what's called progressive Christianity. And many of these people, many of my friends, I'll describe this deconstruction in just a minute, uh, but many of my friends, they've grown up in the church. They've grown up in the church, but they got to the point in their life where they realized that some of the things that culture is telling them, that some of the things that are socially acceptable, they don't jive with what scripture is saying and so they began to wonder if they really do agree with some of the traditional interpretations of the bible and it causes them to split it causes them to 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 question the authority of scripture and perhaps you're here today and maybe you would admit to yourself that you wrestle with some of the things that the bible claims i'm talking about questions like this is jesus really the only way to spend eternity in heaven, or is he just one of many ways? Is hell real? And if it is, why would a loving God create such a place? These are real questions, church. These are great questions. Do our mistakes here on earth really warrant an eternal punishment? Lots of people are asking these questions today. Does the Bible say that marriage really is between one man and one woman, or is that a misinterpretation? Do we have it all wrong? Did they not know the science back then? If we're created in God's image, then why does the Bible tell me not to act upon certain desires? Why can't I just, if I'm created in God's image and he made me the way that I am, I have these drives, I have these feelings. If, if I'm made in the image of God, why can't I just pursue what I want? Why can't I just do what I want? These are the questions that the world is asking, that people are asking the church. And when they read scripture, they have more questions and they wonder, where does my thinking line up? Does it line up at all? And if not, I'm just, I have no choice but to reject the authority of Scripture. You know, deconstruction, excuse me, if, if you're breathing, then you probably have asked these questions before, right? Maybe at some point in your life, you got, I, I know that I've asked the question, is Jesus really the only way to heaven? And I had to wrestle with that for a long time. I had to come to Scripture and allow it to reveal the truth to me. And the wonderful thing about God and the wonderful thing about the Bible is it does not discourage your questions. It invites you to ask questions. It invites you to seek out the truth. It invites you to step into the conversation and to really figure out what's going on. God invites you to do that. He's not scared of the mess. 
He's going, oh no. Oh no, they're asking questions. They're going to figure out that I don't have all the dots. No, God's not worried at all. He's not trying to trick you either. He's not trying to pull the wool over your eye. He wants the best for your life. He has good intentions and he's honest and true. It's who he is. He does not discourage questions. What God honors when genuine honesty is partnered with a desire for the truth. And deconstruction, this is really what deconstruction is. It's, it's intentionally tearing down ideas. This is what it was supposed to be. Deconstruction is supposed to be tearing down ideas so that God can rebuild a more accurate picture. Deconstruction in and of itself is not a bad thing when it's partnered with Scripture, when it's partnered with the truth. But deconstruction apart from the truth will always lead you away from the faith, will always lead you away from Jesus. Jesus actually did a form of deconstruction in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 on his Sermon on the Mount. And he was tearing down these religious ideas and he was tearing down these, these obligations, religious obligations and showing people uh, the way of the kingdom. And so he, he would stand on the sermon, he would stand on the mountain and in his sermon he would talk about uh, really practical things like divorce. And he would tear down the mentality or the ideas about divorce and Jesus would stand up there and say, hey, listen, you've heard it said that it's okay to divorce your spouse, but here, I tell you this, I tell you that this is the greater truth of the kingdom. And then he would talk about lust. He'd say, hey, you've heard it said that, uh, that, that uh, you shouldn't commit adultery. But I tell you this, that if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery with her, with you, excuse me, with her in your heart. My words are all mumbled jumbled this morning. And, and he would tear down these, these ideas that were constructed by the religious people of the day so that he could place a greater kingdom truth in the hearts of people. He did this with loving your enemies. Jesus said, you've heard it said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy, that it's okay to take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But here's what I tell you. The reality of the kingdom, the greater truth of the kingdom is that you're supposed to love even your enemies and forgive 70 times 7. He was deconstructing these ideas. He was tearing down these ideas so he can rebuild a new truth in the hearts of people. And it was a good thing. But the problem is, with today's today's deconstruction, it's being done apart from God's word. And it eventually leads to people forsaking their faith in Jesus. We live in an age of great deception and great confusion. And there's many voices speaking lies into the conversation here's here's one of those voices is uh and none of these people just hear me church none of these people are evil people i'm sure they have good intentions they want good for people but some of them have been really led astray one of one of these voices is uh peter ends he's an american bible scholar and theologian uh i i would consider him to be kind of a progressive christian but he he says this for any one group today To think that it has the best grasp on the creator of the universe is a form of insanity. Run away far and quickly when you see this. So Peter ends is saying, hey, listen, if you think that you know the creator of the universe, if you can say his name, if you you can say you have a relationship with that person, then that's insanity. Run away from it. Nobody can know this. But Colossians 1.15 says this. The son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him. 
and for him. Paul is saying we do know his name. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and through him all things were made. He is the creator of all things, and he invites you into a relationship with him. He invites you to get to know him. He invites you to say his name. So who's right? Is it Peter Enns, or is it Paul? Richard Dawkins, he's a renowned British evolutionary biologist. He says this, Faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is the belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. Huh. But the, the writer of Hebrews says this in chapter eleven six, And without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So who's right? Is Paul right or is Richard Dawkins right? There, there is a right answer. Yes. Yes. Rob Bell. Rob Bell is a, uh, an author of many books, many of them controversial. He's a, he's a pastor. And uh, he, used to, uh, he used to have a lot of uh, great influence in, in, in my life as a young person. Now he's, I feel like he's, he's writing some really weird stuff. But he says this in his book, Love Wins. As obvious as it is, then, Jesus is bigger than any one religion. He didn't come to start a new religion as he continually disrupted whatever conventions or systems or establishments that existed in his day. He will always transcend whatever cages and labels are created to contain him, especially the one called Christianity. And so what, what Rob Bell really communicates in this book is that Jesus, you know, he might have many names. Many people might know Jesus by many names. They, they might know him by the name of Buddha or, or Allah. And, you know, uh, Jesus can't be contained into one religion or one faith or one stream of thought. But, you know, we're warned about these voices. Scripture warns us about deceptive ideas, about confusion coming into the church and coming into the culture. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 5, I'm actually going to jump down halfway through. It says this, uh, Paul writes to Timothy, Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Paul's saying it's coming. There's going to be a, a, a people that just gather teachers around them that say what they want to hear. Right? If, if they find anything that's convicting, it's time, to, it's time to move churches, right? It's time to find a new preacher. If I hear something that, that man, really convicts me, that doesn't jive with what I believe, then I, I'm going to find somebody else. Colossians 2, 6 through 8. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Here it is. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. There's warnings over and over in Scripture that there are hollow and deceptive philosophies in our age that are trying to make its way even in the church. Try and 
to make its way into the minds of people and have, I would say, nearly captured an entire generation. That, uh, the, uh, according to Barna, which is a, um, um, a statistics and research group that does a lot of stuff for the church, they say that Generation Alpha, so my kids, Generation Alpha, will be the first uh, unreached generation in America. That, that, that instead of walking into a group, and uh, if, you're a, if you're an atheist and you walk into a group, you, you know, in the past you could probably assume that you were the only atheist in the room, that you were kind of the odd one out. But Generation Alpha will be able to walk into a room as atheists and know that they're part of the crowd, that, that it's actually you're the oddball if you believe in a God, that you believe in Jesus if you believe in the Bible. We are entering more and more biblical illiteracy because people have not fallen in love with Scripture. People have not fallen in love with God's Word and Jesus when He talks to His disciples. Jesus just gets done multiplying uh, food for thousands of people. He multiplies fish and loaves of bread for thousands of people and He gets in a boat with His disciples. In Mark chapter eight fourteen, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Jesus said, Be careful. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And what's funny about this story is that the disciples immediately thought that Jesus was upset that they forgot to bring lunch. And Jesus is like, Did you guys, were you there just yesterday when we fed thousands of people with just a loaf of bread and some fish? Did you guys miss that? I'm not talking about bread, you guys. But I'm talking about the teachings, the, the, the teachings of, of the Pharisees and that of Herod, the yeast of the Pharisees and that of heaven, these small ideas that creep into our hearts and if left unattended will rise and take over the entire heart. He talks about the yeast or the teachings of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And so the yeast of the Pharisees, he's, re, he's referring to hyper-religious ideas. These ideas that you have to work for your salvation, that you have to abide by the law to receive grace. This, this idea that as long as you're doing better than the person sitting next to you, then you're okay, right? If you, as long as you have somebody compared to that are doing a little worse than you, then you're not at the, you're not at the bottom of the rung. These are these hyper-religious ideas that the Pharisees kind of communicated to the people. And he's also talking about the yeast of Herod, these secular ideas that creep into the minds of people. And so th- today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address some of these secular ideas or, or the yeast of Herod. And I want to tackle some of these questions head on. And I want to I address some of these, these concerns and these critiques of the Bible. The Bible is true. The Bible is unwavering and and. A lot of times when I have conversations with friends uh, who are my age and, and, and younger, um, I hear, I often hear one of these three critiques of the Bible. Here's the first one. By the way, I, we talked about this this last summer, and this is kind of a recap of what we talked about in the summer. But I, I think it's important to, to address these things once again. The first critique that I hear a lot of the Bible is that the books of the Bible were written and compiled by men. And therefore... It, the Bible is full of errors and cannot be perceived as God's divine word to humanity. That, yeah, it's, it's, it's the book that we read as Christians, but it was written, it was penned by the hands of men. So how can it be God's divine word 
to humanity. And at our church, we affirm that the Bible is inerrant, meaning that it's without errors, that everything in the Bible was meant to be there, without errors. The, the writers and the speakers in the Bible, they present these writings as uniquely authoritative. And Jesus himself affirms the authority of the Bible. In John 10.35, Jesus is referring to the Old Testament when, when saying that the scriptures cannot be broken. In Numbers 23.19, it says that God is not a man that he should, should, he, that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. And there's an interesting piece uh, of Hebrews in chapters 3 and 4 where the author of Hebrews is actually quoting from Psalm 95. And in chapter 3, verse 7, he quotes from uh, Psalm 95 and he attributes the writing to the Holy Spirit. He says, as the Holy Spirit wrote, and he begins to quote Psalm 95. Well, then if you turn the page and go to the very next chapter, he quotes the exact same scripture from Psalm 95, but instead of attributing it to the Holy Spirit, he attributes it to David, the one who actually penned the words on the paper. And so the, writers, the, the writer of Hebrews is saying that although David penned the words on the page, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to do that. To do that. that the words that were given to him were inspired by the Holy Spirit. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 3.16, it says that all Scripture is God-breathed, or it's inspired by God. All Scripture is inspired by God. Now, you might be sitting here and you're thinking, but pastor, you're using the Bible to defend the Bible. You can't do that. You can't use the Bible to defend the inerrancy of the Bible. And actually, I would say, yes, I can, because I believe that the Bible is, that there's no authority above the Bible. It is complete truth. The doctrine of inerrancy teaches that the word of God is the ultimate authority. Did you know that the authority of scripture was completely accepted from the completion of the New Testament all the way to the 1600s when people during the Enlightenment started to question the accuracy and inerrancy of the Bible? That for 2,000 years, nobody even questioned the accuracy of the Bible. And it wasn't until these philosophers started coming out with these ideas that were, that were humanistic and they were, they were uh, looking internally for solutions and for answers that people started questioning the accuracy of the Bible because when, we, when they read the Bible, it was, uh, it was in contrast to what they feel in their, in their flesh and what they want to do. But for 2,000 years, nobody questioned the accuracy of the Bible. Believing that the Bible is inerrant, it doesn't mean that there aren't translation errors, because we've seen that in some cases where some letters have been accidentally swapped. Uh, and even in our modern English translations, I'll, I'll bet if you ask people what translation you have in the room, there'd be about four or five different translations that you're holding on to. And it's because some people believe that they have a more accurate interpretation or more accurate translation of those words. And I, I believe that there's translation issues at times. But the doctrine of inerrancy teaches that although there may be issues in translation, the Bible is completely truthful and inerrant in everything it affirms and denies and should be viewed as God's divinely written word to humanity. That's what we believe at our church. That everything in here is God's divine word and it's his truth meant to feed your soul, meant to build you up, meant to edify you and encourage you and keep you walking with him, bring you into intimacy with him. The second critique that I often hear of the Bible is this, 
that the Bible contradicts itself in some places and can't be used as the standard for truth. One of these examples is in, uh, in uh, Judas's death. In the book of Matthew, it describes that Judas, after he betrays Jesus, he goes and he hangs himself on a tree. But when you read the book of Acts, it says that he fell into a field and his inside spilled out all over the place. Now, there are two different uh, descriptions of the same person's death. And some people would say that these contradict each other. But I would say they don't because <coughs> Matthew, where he might be trying to describe the exact details of Judas's death, maybe Luke in, in the book of Acts is trying to describe the horror surrounding his death. Or maybe he hung himself on a tree and the, and the branch broke because he was there for so long and his big bloated body fell on the ground and spilled out. I know, this is pretty gross. Uh, you're welcome for that image. But, but a person who is critical of these types of incongruencies, these little types of incongruencies, they have a, I would say, and this isn't an insult at all, they have a simplistic view of inerrancy. They are most likely unaware that they don't apply the same criticism to their everyday life. For instance, I, I think I gave this example before. Is, you know, if my, if my wife, um, it's my wife's minivan. If my wife is driving her minivan and her battery dies at the grocery store and she calls me and says, hey, can you come pick me up? My battery died and I need a ride. I need you to come fix the car. Well, if I'm running late for a meeting and I, I look at the guy after I fix, you know, help my wife with her minivan and I, I go to the guy and I say, hey, sorry I'm late. My car broke down. I needed to get it fixed. Some might say, if, you're being, if you have a simplistic view of inerrancy, you'd look at me and say, whoa, 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 just a second here. You, you just said that it was your wife's minivan. Is it your wife's minivan or is it your minivan? Hold on. Is it a minivan or a car? Because you said your car broke down, but it's actually a minivan, right? Or, or you, your car broke down? Did it break down? Like the engine go bad or did the battery just die? There's a difference, Blake. Come on. I want you to be more accurate. See, we don't do this in everyday life, do we? It's enough for me to say, hey, my car broke down. I had to get it fixed. I don't have to tell you, well, my wife's minivan was at the grocery store and her battery died. It's a simplistic view of inerrancy. And people don't apply that same criticism to their everyday life like they do in the Bible. As one reads the Bible, questions will naturally begin to arise. And like I said before, the Bible doesn't discourage these questions. God's not trying to trick you. He's not trying to keep something from you. He's completely truthful. And his word invites us to ask questions and discover the answer. And we have to understand that the writers of the Bible are attempting to convey a message or a truth to us. And it's our job to discover what that principle or that message is that we apply to our life today. It's not to get bogged down with all the, with all the small details. There are cultural differences that we have to iron out in Scripture and, and think to ourselves, okay, what did this mean to this, this ancient people, and how does that apply to me today? But the authors are actually, they're trying to convey this, this message of truth, this overarching message of truth, and it's our job to figure out what that is. The final critique that I, I hear a lot, and this is probably the one that I hear the most, oh, my wife is awesome, she's bringing me water. Thank you. That would have been really embarrassing if you just sat down and started drinking and it wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the last critique is this is that the Bible was written to an ancient audience and therefore many of the moral and ethical teachings cannot be translated into our modern world 
Another way to maybe rephrase this is, why would a loving God keep us from things that make us happy? Why would a God who loves us want, want to keep us from things that make us happy? This is a big one for today's culture. There's over 600 laws in the Old Testament, and Christians are accused of being inconsistent and choosing to obey some of those laws and ignoring others. For instance, Leviticus 19.19 19, It says not to wear garments made with two different types of cloth. So if you're sitting here and you've got cotton and polyester in the same church, then you need to get out. Okay? It also says in Leviticus that you're not supposed to boil a goat in its mother's milk. So if I catch you boiling a goat in its mother's milk, you're out. But we don't. We don't, we don't question these today, and that's what we're being accused of. That's what Christians are being accused of. How come you listen to some laws of the Old Testament, but you don't listen to others? The question is, do we have a good reason for still obeying some commands and ignoring others? And I say that we do. We actually do. The reason is, is that we have to read the Bible in light of its overarching storyline or its covenantal development. Because that's, that's really, there's an arc in the Bible. And if you are someone who reads scripture uh, in snippets and you just get the Twitter post, right? You just get the Instagram verse. Jeremiah 29, 11, Oh, for I know the plans I have for you. Thank you. It's just what I needed to hear. If you do that all your life and you don't read the overarching storyline of scripture, you will be confused. And you will not know what's going on because there is a story that is being told. From, from the time where the people of God are chosen, when God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to make your kids my people. I'm going to make you the father of nations, and through your offspring, nations will be blessed. And there's this overarching storyline where they go into slavery, and God frees them, and it's all this foreshadowing of Jesus. And, and then there's these, the, the time of exile, and they come out of exile, and there's 400 years of silence, and Jesus shows up on the scene, and he's the answer. There's this storyline that we read throughout scripture. And we need to read the Bible in light of its overarching covenantal development. God made a covenant with Israel that distinguished them from other nations because they were to be set apart. And that was what the old covenant was for. It was to set God's people apart from everyone else. And when we read the entirety of scripture, we see that we're under a new covenant. We know this when we read the Bible, that we are under the law of Christ, and the old covenant has passed away. And I would argue that none of the commands in the Old Testament are binding in and of themselves, because that whole covenant has been removed as a whole package. It's gone. We're under a new covenant entirely, the the law of Christ. The question isn't, why don't we follow some of the commands? The question becomes, why do we follow any of them at all? Why do we follow any of the commands in the Old Testament at all if if we have a new covenant? Because we still do keep some of them, don't we? Some of them are seen again in the New Testament where Jesus says, don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't lie. But what's the rationale behind which covenants that we still keep and which ones we disregard? The most broad summary, I think, of this is that the purpose of the new covenant is not to provide ways to keep us righteous before the Lord. That was... That was the old covenant. In the new covenant, Jesus already did that on the cross. He became our righteousness. So now the purpose of the new covenant is to teach us how to love God and love others. 
Jesus said in the New Testament that all the commands can be boiled down to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So obedience and the old covenant was a requirement of right standing before God. Now obedience and the new covenant is a product of love because your righteousness has already been purchased for you. We obey the laws of the new covenant out of a response of love that we have for God. That our, We don't have to earn our righteousness. Jesus did that for us. And I'm going to spend my life in obedience to the one who set me free. We live under a new covenant entirely. And so uh, people who accuse Christians of following some laws in the Old Testament and ignoring others, they don't understand the overarching storyline. That there's a greater story being told. There's a new covenant that we are under. And we still do, there's still some similarities to the old covenant, but it's the law of Christ that we are held bound by now. Does that make sense? Are you still with me? You know, every single person, every person is being shaped by something or someone. You are being discipled whether you like it or not. Somebody is discipling you. Somebody is shaping you. Somebody is molding you. We never experience seasons of dormancy. We're always continually being formed and shaped and discipled. And the question is, who are you following? Who are you allowing to disciple you? CNN? Fox? Is it Joe Rogan? I like his podcast sometimes. Hollywood? Who are you allowing to disciple you? Who is shaping you? Who is forming you? My friend and pastor, uh, his name is Phil Manginelli, he said one of the greatest tragedies of our generation is that most don't realize that they have been discipled by secularism and allowed it to shape their core identity and convictions. Secularism is the greatest discipleship movement in the history of our lives, and it is subtly transforming the world into its image. Secularism is the cultural belief and philosophy of our age, And it is deeply embedded into every aspect of life. Here's what secularism is. Secularism is a way of life that rejects the truth of the Bible and provides an alternative way of living that caters to an individual's desires. It rejects the truth truth of the Bible so that it it can cater to the wants and the needs and the desires of an individual. So is there a way of Jesus that keeps us grounded on God's truth and protects us from being taken by secular discipleship? Yes, we immerse ourselves in Scripture. We immerse ourselves in God's Word. But we know this, don't we? Come on, if you've grown up in church for any amount of time, you, you know that, you know, here's what I want you to do, church. I want you to go home and pray and read your Bible. We know it's important, but we don't always do it. Just like we know flossing is important, and we don't always do it. We know, some of us, we know that calling our mom is important, but we don't always do it. Shame on you. Come on, we know that reading the Bible is important, but knowing that it's important is not enough. You have to fall in love with God's Word. You have to fall in love with Jesus. Did you know that if you fall in love with Jesus, it's to fall in love with God's word? You can't have Jesus apart from his word, which is what a lot of people want today. I want, I want love. 
and mercy. I like Jesus. He was all about compassion and love and acceptance and mercy and justice. I like Jesus, but I don't like his word. I don't like the Bible. Listen, John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. If you jump down to verse 14, it says this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. The Bible says that Jesus is the word. And to love Jesus is to love the word. You can't have one without the other. Jesus not only was the word, but he devoted himself to reading the word and to the fulfillment of the word. Matthew 5, 17 through 19 says, don't misunderstand why I, why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purposes. I came to fulfill it. Verse 18, I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear Not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. Just think about that for a minute. Every word of God that is spoken never goes to waste. It always fulfills what it is seeking to achieve. When God speaks a word over your life, when he gives us truth in our life, it will always fulfill what God sent it out to achieve. That's powerful. Come on, I'm preaching good this morning, church. So if you ignore, it says in verse 19, if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Did you catch that? If you ignore the least commandment. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus himself is saying that even the smallest teaching in scripture is important. What is ridiculous is when someone says, I love Jesus. I like the ideas of love and justice and mercy like we just talked about. But you know what? I just, I can't handle his word. Essentially, they they say, I want the kingdom without the king. I I want to enjoy the benefits of the kingdom of heaven, love and joy and peace and hope and mercy and justice. I want to enjoy the benefits of living in the kingdom, but I don't want to submit to the king. That's the world we live in, where they have moved beyond following any one person thinking that we can achieve those things ourselves. It's called post-Christendom, or this post-modern idea of, of spirituality, where we think that truth is identified in the individual, that truth is, is something that is different for every person. What's true for you is not true for me, so you live your life and you do what you feel is best for your life, but don't call me out on my stuff. Because i got a different truth. And if you call me out on my stuff, I'm going to call you out on your stuff, and we're going to have some conflict. So let's go about our lives, enjoying the fruits of the kingdom, and ignoring that there's a king who's actually calling us closer to him and trying to open up our eyes to see the truth. This is the world that we live in. If, if, if you dare say that there's a king of this kingdom, if you dare say that there's a person who wants your heart, there's a person who wants you to follow him. There's a person who actually has better things in store for your life than you have for yourself. If you dare say that to someone, you become an outcast. And you become a pariah in our society. But here's the encouraging thing, church. It's easy to think that we're alone. That, it, 
that our world is getting darker and darker and that our church is getting smaller and smaller and that the people of God are becoming more and more weak. But that is not the story that I read in the Bible. If you read the, the overarching story of God's people, go to Revelation and you see victory. You see, you see trium- a triumphant church. You are not alone. There is still, there are still people here in our nation and over, across the world who are madly in love with Jesus and madly in love with his word and will not for one second give, give, give an inch to the enemy and on the grounds of what's true and what's not true. You are not alone. You have a, you have a people. You have, uh, you have a, a people that, that believe the word of God that are choosing to stand on the word of God. And so we don't have to cower in fear. We don't have to give ground to the enemy. We don't have to give ground to the world because we feel the pressure of society climbing in on us and we feel the need to conform. You don't have to do that. You're not alone. Jesus said that you have to lose your life in order to find it. I loved Christina's message last week. You've got to pick up the cross and follow him. In Matthew 7, 13 through 14, Jesus said, For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. That's an easy road. Come on, it's easy to just, to just come in line with, with what the world is, is preaching us, with what Hollywood, what, what the news wants us to believe. It's just easy to just conform to the patterns of this world. That gate is wide. It's a big gate, but Jesus says small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. It's hard following Jesus. And I'm sorry if when you came to the faith, somebody told you that accepting Jesus in your life meant that your life was going to be easier. That was a lie. Jesus never promised your comfort. He never promised an easy life. In fact, he said people are going to hate you for following me. They're going to hate you for this. But what did Paul say when he was in prison? He said, all this stuff that I once thought was great, all this stuff that I counted as valuable at one time, I, it's rubbish. It's garbage compared to what I've found in Christ. That's the church that we're supposed to be. Yeah, I'm walking the narrow road, and I'm not popular. People don't like me, right? When I speak up, Things get ugly. And we're not supposed to do that in an ugly way, by the way, church. We're supposed to do it in love and compassion. But Jesus says, when you follow me, it's not going to be a popular thing. But what you're going to get in return is going to immeasurably outweigh what you lost. When you give something to God and you say, yes, Lord, I surrender this to you, it hurts. I read scripture and I don't want to do that. I, I don't want to forgive that person. I don't, want to, I don't want to do that. And when you give it to God, he says, oh, now that I have all of you, I can use all of you. I love this story in Luke 24. It's the story of a resurrected Jesus. Jesus, has, he's out of the grave and he's showing himself to people. Come on, this is an exciting part of the Bible. This, this part of the Bible gets me excited. And the resurrected Jesus, it's a kind of a funny story. There's these two men on the road to Aramaeus, and they're kind of sad. They're walking down the street. They're actually walking away from Jerusalem. 
They're walking in the wrong direction. And Jesus shows up and he starts walking with them. How many of you know that we serve a God who walks with people who are going the wrong way? And he walks next to them and he says, what are you guys talking about? First he says, why are you guys so sad? Well, we had hoped that Jesus, this Messiah, we, we had hoped that this person, Jesus, who was crucified was the Messiah, but, but they killed him and they went and visited the tomb and his body wasn't there. And, and Jesus goes, this is what Jesus says. Luke 24, 25, and he said to them, how foolish are you? Now, this wasn't me. I don't think Jesus was like, you fool. <laughs> Jesus says, how foolish are you? And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter and enter and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. I love what Jesus does. Jesus comes alongside of them. They're, they're sad. They're downtrodden. He, you know, they're feeling beaten because the messiah the person that they had hoped was the messiah is now dead and they're they're sad and jesus could have just been like ta-da it's me you guys you don't have to be sad could have pressed the easy button right i'm right here just put a smile on your face but jesus doesn't do that what does jesus do he says hey can i see your bible let me see let me show you let me explain to you all the stuff that was written about the messiah and he gives them scripture, and he begins to explain himself in scripture to reveal who he is to those guys. That's how much Jesus loved scripture. Instead of saying, here I am, I'm right here, he goes, what's your Bible say? Let's read this together. Let's dive in, you guys. And so, funny, the funny continues. Jesus explains all this stuff in Scripture, and then the Bible says that he pretends to keep on going. They're, they're going a different direction, and Jesus pretends to keep on walking. He's waiting for an invitation. So he's pretending to walk, and they say, hey, what, would you come with us and stay with us? Would you come stay with us for dinner? And Jesus goes, oh, well, I guess if you're asking, I, <laughs> I had other things to do, but no, he didn't say that. He, Jesus goes along with them. And it says that they sat at the table, and when they broke bread, they took communion together. And when they broke the bread, their eyes were opened, and they saw Jesus. And then he disappears. See ya! And the men are left there thinking, and they said to each other, weren't our hearts burning inside of us when he was talking about the scriptures? Weren't we just burning when he was revealing scripture to us? Come on, church, we're supposed to be a church that our hearts start to burn when we hear Scripture. We're supposed to get lit on fire with this love for Scripture. We know it's important. Important's not enough. We have to be lit on fire. Our hearts have to be set on fire. I'm going to ask, is Jennifer in here? Or maybe, you, thanks, babe. Hop on the piano. It always makes it more spiritual when you've got music in the background, right? You know, you know, do you know why we can't remember things as a baby? It's not because we have an underdeveloped hippocampus and that our brains aren't developed enough to remember things. We don't remember things as babies because we haven't yet learned to speak and we don't have language for their experiences, for the experiences that we have. See, scientists have discovered that until a baby has a word for something, 
it ceases to exist in their minds and therefore they cannot hold on to that memory until there's a word for that, for that thing. Think about the beginning of creation now. The earth was formless and void of anything. It's just emptiness. Nothing existed until God gave it a word and he said, let there be light. And there was light. And suddenly it existed because God's word brought it to existence. God could have used a number of methods to reveal himself to humanity, but he chose language. He chose written and spoken words for you and I. See, God doesn't use words because that's what we do. We use words because that's what God does. We were created in his image and we speak his language. He created words and uses them to speak things into being that were not there before. He created you in his image with the ability of language so that you can do the same thing. You can speak things into existence that weren't there before. Did you know that's the power that you have partnered with God's word? You speak things into existence. Proverbs 18.21 says, The tongue can bring death or life. Those who love to talk will reap the consequences. Come on. Proverbs says that your tongue, what you say, is either going to bring life into existence or it's going to bring death. That's the power your words have. That's the power your language has. Did you know that there are life-giving words that God has spoken over you that are waiting for you to align yourself with those words so they can be manifested. God has spoken promises over your life. He's spoken words over your life. He's spoken good intentions over your life. And they are waiting for you to come into alignment with those words so that they can be manifested in your life. How do I know this? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. It says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put it in his, he put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. See, some of God's words are waiting for your amen. God has said, yes, I've got good things for your life. I've got promises for your life. And they're waiting for you to say amen to them. Well, how do we know which words to say amen to? We have to fall in love with the Bible. And we read those promises over our life. We read the Bible and we say, you know what? It says here that that God, that he wants healing for my body. That, that in Isaiah 53, that he was broken, he was bruised for me. And by his stripes, I am healed. We say amen. Amen to that promise. When you're feeling like you need a, a counselor, when you need a, a wonderful counselor to give you insight and wisdom on a decision in your life, word says that which of you fathers on earth is, if your son asks him for a, a loaf of bread, is going to give him a stone. If he asks for a fish, are you going to give him a scorpion? No, if you fathers on earth know how, know how to give good gifts to your kids, then how much more will I pour out my Holy Spirit on those who ask for it? And so we ask for it. We say amen to that because we read in his word that he has already said yes. 
So we agree with it. We align ourselves with it. That's the power of God's word. Would you stand with me? Put your hands out. And let's invite the Lord to help us fall in love once again with his word. Father, we want to say every time we open scripture, we're not our hearts burning inside when we were reading your words. God, ignite a new flame in us. Father, I pray for those with short attention, ADHD in the room, who maybe have a hard time focusing. God, would you give them the strength? Would you uh, give them an audio Bible that they really love and they can listen to it? And God, I just pray for, uh, for, for your words to be manifested in our life, that you would draw our eyes to the pieces of Scripture that you want to see manifested in our life that you want to do in our life and god i pray that you'd fill us with with hope and with courage that yes our world is is looking dark on the outside but father your church is burning more and more brighter your people are falling more and more in love with you and yes father the road is narrow and and sometimes we feel like both sides are closing in on us but father we choose to run to you and stay in the in the middle of the road And we cling to your word. We cling to your son, Jesus. I really feel like I'm supposed to give an invitation for for people here. If you don't know who Jesus is and you want to start a relationship with him, this morning I believe God is calling you into a relationship with him and a relationship to reading his word. If that's you, you've never said yes to Jesus, but you say, today I give my life to Jesus. I devote myself to him. Let me see your hand. Put your hand up right now. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Anybody else in the room? You can put your hands down. If that was you, I want to say that God welcomes you into his family. And no matter how far you have run from him, he has been waiting. Just like the story of the prodigal son. He's the father who has been waiting every morning, looking at the horizon, waiting for you to come home. And he runs after you with open arms. He doesn't come and meet you with condemnation. He doesn't meet you with judgment. He meets you with grace and with love and with mercy. He says, welcome home. Father, I pray that you would strengthen the people who gave their hearts to you today. Fill them with your spirit. Fill them with a new fire. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you gave your heart to Jesus today, or you made a new decision to follow him, I want to invite you to come to Grow Class next Sunday. It's going to happen right after church, and we're going to talk a little bit more about what it means to follow Jesus and to be, uh, to be a follower of Jesus. So, church, I love you. I pray that you have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next Sunday.